Father, we ask for your help. Uh, us getting dressed up, us preparing to be here. Yeah, my preparation this week for this moment, uh, Lord, are all ineffectual. Uh, what we need is your spirit. So, Lord, you send your spirit, the spirit of the resurrected Christ, uh, to meet us here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, when's the last time you've been to a surprise party? You know, the kind where you, you, you get behind a couch, drink in hand, try not to spill it. You wait for the person that the party's for to come in and you jump out from behind the couch and yell, surprise, that kind of party? When's the last time? Well, my favorite reaction to such a party, I, I heard from someone and I regrettably didn't get to witness it. The celebrated guest walked in. She cast her eyes confusedly at the decor and all the people and she remarked, this isn't my party. This decor is not near enough. It's way too plain for me. And it made me laugh so hard when I heard this story. I wanted so badly to have gotten to hear that remark. But that's the whole thing about surprises. I mean, they do keep you, catch you off guard, don't they? You don't know how you're going to respond to something that you don't see coming. And some of us, we don't like surprises. Maybe you're a control freak. Others of us, we love a good surprise. But the truth is that life doesn't really care if you like surprises or not. Surprises are inevitable. In each Easter, we, there's a bit of a surprise element about it, mostly due to the date and partly because of the weather in Kentucky. I mean, the date can be as early as March 22nd and it can be as late as April 25th. You might need to have soup for lunch to warm yourself up, or you might need to grill out in shorts. It's a surprise. Yet no Easter was as startling as the first one. See, as you look through the four Gospels and you see Jesus appear to different people, you'll notice that not one person ever expected it. Not one time is someone deep in prayer preparing to encounter the resurrected Christ. It's always a surprise, which means that resurrection is not something that you do. Easter is not something that you do. Resurrection and Easter is something that happens to you. See, resurrection is not about doing things for God. Resurrection is about God doing something for you because God's on the loose. He's alive and he shows up in our lives unexpected. Surprise. See, that was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today too. And today we're going to look at three accounts of Jesus surprising people back to back to back in John chapter 20. The first one's Mary Magdalene. The second one is 10 of the 12 disciples without Judas, without Thomas. And the third appearance is to Thomas, one of the disciples. And as I read our passage, I want, to, I want you to look. What was Mary Magdalene's inner state when she met with Jesus? What, was, what were the 10 of the 12 disciples' inner state when Jesus appeared to them. And what was Thomas's interstate when Jesus appeared to him? So let's read this passage together. John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. All right, now let's look at the 10 10 of the 12 disciples. Verse 19, on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you give the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from many, it is withheld. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to him, said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. So you saw it. Did you see what they were like when Jesus got to them? You see it in verse 11. You see what Mary's doing there? She's weeping. She's sad. You see in verse 19 with 10 of the 12 disciples, they're fearful. They have anxiety. And then in verse 25, you see that Thomas is doubting. So that's where they're all at. And doesn't that sound like you and me? I mean, which of those most describes you this morning? Are you a doubter? Are you fearful or is your default state anxiety or did you come sad today? See, all these people, they've heard all of Jesus' teaching. They're not new to the Jesus thing, the people that Jesus appears to in this passage. They've heard him forecast about his death and resurrection. They've seen him perform all kinds of miracles. Yet in this passage, you see no confidence, you see no hope and you see no peace in them. All you see is sadness, fear, and doubt. So let's start with Mary Magdalene and look at how the resurrection happens to sad people. See, Mary Magdalene, she has good reason to be sad. You find out in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus meant a whole lot to her. I mean, he had healed her from being possessed by seven demons. So this changed her life. It changed it a ton that she wanted to follow Jesus around and be one of his ministry partners. It changed her so much that she gave him a whole bunch of his money to help him with his ministry. And it seems like Mary Magdalene, that she travels with Jesus and the 12 disciples 
for most of his three years of public ministry. In fact, she's the one that you can find at the crucifixion and the burial where you will not find the 12 disciples. So you see, you see why she would be sad. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. Can you imagine having seven demons? I mean, probably not. That makes a lot of us as 21st century Westerners quite squeamish, but I'm sure that having seven demons wasn't pleasant. I'm sure it was very torturous. I'm sure it's something that you would never wish on your worst enemy, but Mary had lived with it and had lived with it for a long time. And I bet the day that she was set free was the best day of her whole life. There were no more voices in her head. No longer was she a prisoner in her own body. She's free. So yeah, she's going to give her money to Jesus. Yeah, she's going to give her time to Jesus and follow him around and be one of his ministry partners. She loved him. And now he's dead. It's a crushing blow. And her heart hurts. And that's really what sadness is all about. That's what grief is all about. It's about loss. See, being sad shows that you actually cared for something or you cared for someone. And now the thing or the person that you cared for is now gone. So in many ways, Mary should be sad. But in other ways, she shouldn't be. I mean, she heard Jesus predict that he was going to die and raise again. But somehow that prediction, that promise didn't sink deep into her psyche like it should have. So what's Jesus going to do with her? I mean, does this disqualify her from being a witness to the resurrected Jesus? Not at all. You see Jesus come to her. He condescends to her. He approaches her with empathy. He approaches her in this non-judgmental, caring posture in verse 15. And he asks her, why are you crying? See, there's no rebuke. There's no chastening her for not believing what he had already told her. And when Jesus comes to her, she's not even praying. She's not trying to get God's attention, but she already has Jesus's attention. Why does she have Jesus's attention? Well, it's because of her tears. He's drawn to her. See, God's always been drawn to the brokenhearted. He's always been drawn to those who are crushed in spirit. He's always been drawn to those who are weeping. So why do we apologize for our tears? I mean, every time you see someone cry in private, they say, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. See, when we cry, we go into rooms by ourselves. But you're never really alone when you cry. You know that, don't you? Jesus is always there. You might not know it. You certainly don't expect it. Mary didn't expect it. She's startled when she realizes that Jesus had risen from the dead and has now met her in her sad place. So brother and sisters, have you experienced great loss this year? Since the last time you were in this room for Easter has some kind of loss flattened you on your back? Well, if it has, the resurrected Jesus will come to you. He's compassionate and loving to sufferers of all kinds. The resurrected Jesus and sadness. But you see the resurrected Jesus when it comes to being fearful. You see in verses 19 to 23, in verse 19, you see that the disciples are hid away. They're locked up in this room. They're afraid that their heads are going to roll next. See, if the Jews had killed Jesus, then the Jews will certainly kill them because they're closely associated with Jesus. And in many ways, their fear is not 
unwarranted, is it? I mean, Jesus' body is real evidence of what might happen to them. But these ten disciples also have evidence of the contrary, don't they? I mean, think about what these disciples have witnessed these last three years. They've seen Jesus calm storms. They've seen Jesus feed 5,000. They've heard all of Jesus' sermons. And somehow, just the fact that they've heard all his sermons doesn't make any difference in their life here in John chapter 20, verse 19. See, but that's the thing about anxiety. Your anxiety is really hard to argue with. See, somehow fear has a way of hijacking your reason to the degree that you lose all sense of rationality. Have you ever tried to tell someone, don't be afraid? I mean, Jenna's afraid of bugs, and every time she sees a bug, she freaks out. And I say, why are you so afraid? It's just a bug. This week, one of our kids threw up, and I bolted like a, like a, like a blade of lightning. And Jenna's like, why are you so afraid of our kids when they throw up? I'm like, because I hate throwing up. I haven't done it since second grade. But her telling me not to be afraid of vomiting, it does no good just so it doesn't do any good to ever tell anybody to quit being afraid. Disciples, they can't argue themselves into a state of peace. They can't be saying to themselves, all right, why are we afraid of the Jews? Jesus has proven himself to be more than capable, right? So surely he's got a plan for us here. But that's not what happens. Their fear of the Jews has outpaced their trust in Jesus. So what's Jesus going to do with this faceless bunch? They don't deserve to have him show up at their door. You might think Jesus should wait till they come to their, their senses and they calm down a little bit, but that's not what happens. Jesus comes to them and he finds them and he finds them in all their worries. But if I were the disciples, I wouldn't just be afraid of the Jews. I'd be afraid of Jesus. I mean, these guys, they had abandoned Jesus in the days leading up to his crucifixion. They probably think Jesus is going to show up and lay into them for their betrayal. But wrong again. Jesus actually shows up and does just the opposite. Instead of giving them judgment, Jesus gives them grace. He takes steps to alleviate their worry and convince them of who he was. He appears to them. He shows them where the nails went. He shows them where the spear went. And then he speaks peace over them in verse 19 and then again in verse 21. So have you ever been stricken by the worry bug? Maybe you've not been stricken by the worry bug. Maybe anxiety is your, just, your default state. You can't imagine life without your good friend named anxiety. Brother and sister, you likely have good reasons, just like the disciples did for your fears. But you, just like the disciples, you have good reasons for trusting God too. And somehow fear is winning out. So what should you do? Well, maybe the first thing you should do is see that your unwarranted fear does not make you unfit for a visit from the resurrected Jesus. Jesus doesn't wait for the disciples to get rid of their worry and then show up and say, I'm so glad you guys got your stuff together so I could come and be with you. No, 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 no. Jesus comes to them and does for them what they cannot do for themselves. And that'll happen to you too. Jesus is alive and he'll show up to you in your worries and he'll speak peace over you too. So you see that Jesus comes to you when you're sad. Jesus will come to you when you're fearful, and Jesus will come to you when you're doubting. Let's look at Thomas. We don't know why Thomas wasn't with the other disciples in the previous episode, 
We don't know where he was, but when he shows up and he hears about their experiences, he doesn't welcome the news. He resists it. He refuses to accept it. He says it's going to take the plainest of proofs for him to be convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. You can see with Thomas, imagination isn't his strong suit. He's a realist. He calls a spade a spade. He's a skeptic, and maybe you're a skeptic too. If you're not a skeptic, you for sure know one. And skeptics have good reasons to have doubts about Christianity. I mean, it is hard to believe that God created the world from nothing. It's hard to believe that a good God exists to allow suffering. It's hard to believe that there's just one true religion. It's hard to believe in God when he seems to have foolishly trusted such a fallen institution like the church to be his ambassador on earth. See, you see, Christianity requires faith. No one's going to argue about that. But can I tell you that skeptics have faith too? I mean, their faith is implicit. It's hidden beneath their reasoning. Because all doubts, all skepticisms, no matter how skeptical and how cynical they may seem, they're really just a set of alternative beliefs. For example, the statement, if someone says there can't be just one true religion, well, that's a statement of faith. You can't prove that that's empirically true. Or somebody might say, my doubts are not based on a leap of faith. I simply feel no need for God. Well, that's a belief too. It's a belief that the existence of God is a matter of indifference. It's betting your life that no God exists who's going to hold you accountable for your beliefs and your behavior. But take Thomas, for example. He had a belief. He had a belief that Jesus couldn't raise from the dead. It just didn't fit in his grid of plausibility. But again, Thomas is not a French person to Jesus. He's in the inner circle. He should have believed the report from the fellow disciples. So what's Jesus going to do with Thomas? Is he going to ignore him for his lack of faith? Is he going to confront him with harshness? No. Look what Jesus does in verse 27. He stoops down to Thomas's demand for a sign, and he shows him his scarred hands and shows him his scarred side. That's grace. See, Jesus allows Thomas to doubt. There's a permission for Thomas to be where he is. See, here's the truth. I don't like being sad. I don't like having anxiety, and I don't like having doubts. And I believe most of the time that Jesus doesn't like me to be sad, and Jesus doesn't like me to have anxiety, and Jesus doesn't like me to have doubts, and so Jesus is going to ignore me. So I've got to come up with a solution to get rid of my fear and my sadness and my doubts so that Jesus will have something to do with me. So one such solution could be this whole solution of wellness. I mean, I came across this this week, this investigative journalist, her name's Rena Raphael, and she just wrote a book. It's called The Gospel of Wellness. Gems, gurus, goop, and the false promise of self-care. In the book, she talks about, very frankly, that she's a sucker for a craft workout studio, that she wants to find the most exotic, high-end studio workout when she goes out of town. She talks about that she'll buy a skincare product that she knows isn't going to work. 
But in her book, she also tries to tell the hard truth about this whole movement of wellness. She says that the industry, it preys on our insecurities. It, it tries to show us that we're unhealthy. And if we just use the product that's being promoted, that we can be healthy too. It might be a meditation app. It might be eating some superfood. It might mean taking in this aromatherapy. It might mean exposing yourself to some kind of crystal. And if you do, then you can be healthy. And why is this a multi-billion dollar business? Well, I think it's because we're trying to solve for our fear, our sadness, and our doubt. See, as long as we're in this life, we, 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 we likely don't, we don't deal with these realities in healthy ways. You might deal with it through wellness, but it might be substances. It might be overworking. I don't know. But all of them, all these solutions, they all overpromise and underdeliver. They're all bad elixirs. They're all toxic tonics. You need something different. And dare I say, someone different, somebody who actually cures, and his name is Jesus, and he rose from the dead. And he's going to surprise you. See, you think he's going to ignore you because of your sadness, but surprise. Jesus comes to you in your sadness without your invitation and he asks you why you're sad and he offers you resurrection. See, you think you're going to have to work yourself out of your anxiety and into some kind of state of serenity so that Jesus will notice you, but surprise. Jesus comes to you in your fear. He comes to you when you can't calm yourself down and he does it for you. He doesn't rationalize with you by telling you your fears are unfounded. Instead, he overrides your anxiety with the peace of resurrection. You, you, you think that doubts are always a sign of lack of faith. Therefore, Jesus is going to cast you off, but surprise. Jesus comes to you in your doubts. He doesn't shame you for your doubts. And he gives you hard evidence and he calls you to believe. I recently heard this story. A story from a pastor and he said he's getting ready to marry this young couple and he observed they were more bubbly than most. And this concerned him. Their pie-in-the-sky language made him worry that they were a bit too idealistic. They were setting themselves up for failure. So the pastor says, please tell me the story of your relationship. How did you all get together? And they said they met online. Always a tough admission for some reason. They said their first date went well. It wasn't great, but it was good enough to give it another try. They go on a second date. Again, nothing groundbreaking happens, but it's good enough to keep going. And then on his way to their third date, the young man had a seizure. He drove his car into a telephone pole, and he was hospitalized in a coma. The doctor said it would be six months minimum. And so the young woman found herself in an awkward position, right? I mean, she likes this guy, but they've only been on two dates, and he's going to be in bed for six months. So she goes to her family, and her family says, hey, you have no obligation to him. No one's going to think less of you if you walk away from this relationship. Might be a good idea to check, in, check back in in a year and see how he's doing, but you should move on. She thought about it for a while. She ignored their counsel. She decided to stay by his side as much as she could. And she just happened to be there when he opened his eyes. And in that instant, the young man said he knew that this was the woman he wanted to marry. 
That's a surprise. And the surprise of the gospel is that your sadness, fear, and doubt don't disqualify you from a life with Jesus. Grace stands before you in the person of Jesus. Surprise. Let's pray. Father, thank you that not all of life is predictable. Not all of life is cause and effect. Not all of life can we explain. (laughs) But grace is possible. And so, Lord, we thank you for Easter. Thank you that we come and celebrate that grace here this day. In Christ's name, amen.